And so this is why, why when we talk about universal basic income, we're very much thinking about it as a part of a broader project. And this broader project is explicitly about challenging capitalism through the kind of hold that work has on our consciousness and also our kind of daily lives. And this, this is why we're, we're interested in UBI, not really you know, just to end up with an additional payment that everybody gets. It's only really explicable in, in terms of what it's doing as part of this broader system of policies and ideas. Welcome back to the Musing Mind podcast. Last time I spoke with John Verveke, who's working at the intersection of cognitive science and meaning or wisdom cultivation. And we spoke about how sociocultural and economic environments uh, participate in this process of enabling or restricting certain kinds of cognitive development. And today I'm speaking with Dr. Alex Williams. Alex is co-author of the fantastically provocative book titled Inventing the Future, Post-Capitalism and a World Without Work. He's also co-author of a forthcoming book titled Hegemony Now, which updates um, the Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci's theories of how power operates in society in light of complexity science. And when he's not writing, Alex is a lecturer at the University of East Anglia in the UK. And the form of power that he's interested in, called hegemony, is one of these forces at play when we talk about the link between economic policy and consciousness, right? It's one of those open channels between socioeconomic organization and our own private subjectivity. Uh, One of the the themes of his book on post-capitalism is a study of how the neoliberal period of capitalism set up a particular kind of psychology, right? A particular vision of what the future could be and what kind of economic ideas would get us there. So Alex and I discuss his book on post-capitalism, including things like full automation, universal basic income or universal basic services, um, and shortening the working week. We discuss the role of education in how it conditions our ability to imagine uh, radically different futures. And we discuss specific policy ideas like Thomas Piketty's work on progressive taxation, Glenn Weil's work on radical markets, uh, and more broadly, just asking, what can we do from an institutional standpoint to reclaim the vibrancy and the vitality of our possible futures? Uh, this, this episode marks a pretty explicit turn into heterodox economic theory. So the next few episodes, I'll be speaking with post-capitalists, democratic socialists, radical liberals, uh, and economic anthropologists. So on one hand, I'm kind of returning to my college years in terms of studying economics. And I hope that for people familiar with this kind of discourse, you'll find the conversations provocative. Uh, But especially for those who aren't steeped in economic language like neoliberalism or markets, I hope you'll come away with questions of your own, right, regarding this link between economic policy and the possible shapes that our lives can fall into, can take. 
And as always, if you enjoy the episode, please consider sharing it or leaving a, a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. These things help a lot. And if you feel really compelled to help the project continue existing, check out the Patreon page where you can leave a small monthly donation, like $1 a month, to help me invest in improving all facets of the project. All right, here is Alex Williams. All right, well, Alex, welcome. I am, uh, I'm thrilled to have you here. People may or may not be familiar with your work. I first found you through the book that you co-authored with uh, Nick Schrenek. You two wrote the book, Inventing the Future, uh, Post-Capitalism and a World Without Work. And that was, it, it was really a thrilling read. It, it came right at the point where I was trying to figure out what are the really fleshed out kind of uh, substantial visions for this kind of post-capitalist space, whatever that mean. And I kept coming across your book and Paul Mason's post-capitalism through my furious Google searches. So I, I got to reading. But before digging really through the book, you're obviously an author, you're a professor. I'm sure you have a thousand hats you could wear. So I like to start by asking people about the the questions, the themes, the ideas that have kind of cohered and unified through your various projects, right? What are those What are those kind of driving interests that underlie the various projects you've taken on? Yeah, so I think if, if there's a singular kind of driving interest, it's, or maybe there's, maybe there's a few, but uh, perhaps, perhaps two of them are um, power and the future. I think those would be the two core things that, that, that rest at the center of all of my work. And hmm. inventing the future kind of is a, contains both of those elements, though not always being thought together. And I think in terms of trying to situate my work, it has to be kind of situated in when I was kind of first coming to thinking intellectually about the world, which was uh, in the 2000s, really, um, and thinking about the nature of global situation, political situation, and even kind of down to the cultural situation. And mm. really thinking the sort of problematic that, that sort of sparked a, a lot of my work was the problematic of, you know, how is change possible? How is it that in a, in a kind of political, economic, cultural situation, which seems to be hopeless, that seems to be completely overdetermined by um, powerful structural forces, how is it that there, there could be the potential for change? How could that be um, potentially recovered and operationalized and turned into a, a kind of an effective political project? And it's in that kind of context that uh, I think a, a lot of my work needs to be kind of read. In, in a certain sense, it, it obviously has has to have some kind of utopian dimension mm -hmm. in terms of kind of understanding that part of the problem that has perennially faced the left, especially since the fall of you know, communism, has been basically a, a lack of a fulsome vision of the future. So the lack of strong sense of what positively you are for beyond all of the kind of negative elements. And so it's thinking these two things together. The, the, the future is the kind of a thing which must be aimed towards and that can operate as a kind of almost motivational structure that's going to you know, enable political projects to come into, into focus. And power is the kind of medium. If you want to understand why is it that you know, things appear to be very difficult to create positive change, then you have to understand you know, all of the mechanisms through which the existing forms of power are able to sediment themselves and reproduce themselves. And it's these mm -hmm. two things, this kind of realist approach to power, understanding how it really works, uh, combined with a, maybe a more utopian sense of what we need alongside that, alongside often a kind of negative vision, a kind of optimistic vision at the same time. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, this is, <laughs> I know this is going to be a big question, but just to kind of help orient people who might not be familiar, what do you mean when you, when you talk about power? Okay, so power is, is, is a very, very common word in the English language, but it's often not given a very determinate form. It often seems as if power is a kind of thing that's everywhere and nowhere. When I'm talking about power, people, well, when people often talk about power, what they're often referring to is often a very kind of visualizable, palpable power. So the kind of power that is represented sometimes through coercive force. So the kind of power that um, militaries and police forces clearly have. Sometimes also, obviously, power refers to, again, this kind of visualizable form in the form of kind of governmental executive power, the power that mm-hmm. um, administra- government administrations have. And all of these things clearly are forms of power, but the, the way I've come to understand the full complexity of power is through the idea of hegemony. And hegemony is an idea that has a very long, complicated history. Um, but the form that I'm most interested in, uh, this form came into being in the works of the Italian Marxist uh, Antonio Gramsci, writing in the early 20th century. And I've tried to d- develop this, and I'm, and I'm continuing to develop it, because I think it's the form of understanding power that gives us the best way of understanding the ways in which power operates in so many different ways simultaneously. And any kind of well-established form of rule, shall we say, relies upon a number of different concurrent mechanisms operating at the same time. And these mechanisms work to mutually reinforce one another. And often when we're thinking about politics, if we're thinking about political activism, there tends to be a focus on some of these mechanisms that ignores other ones. And this is why you end up with political movements and programs that are unsuccessful. This is partly why I'm sort of so attentive to this question of power, because ultimately, once you, you need to understand its subtleties, that it's not just, you know, it's, it's, it's not just direct shows of force, and it's not just conventional institutional governmental power. It operates across almost every area of the social uh, in, in different and subtle ways. And understanding how you organize in that kind of context, I think, is key. And mm-hmm. the reason why I think something like um, hegemony is a good way of thinking about this is because hegemony encompasses a number of different forms of power. So it would encompass things like, yes, it would encompass coercive power, it would encompass governmental institutional power, but it would also encompass a wide variety of other forms of leadership and influence that small groups in society are able to exert on larger groups. So this would include things like kind of media framing, it would include things like culture, it would include things like uh, education, it would even include things like the design of our built environments mm-hmm. and the ways that all of these things are either through intentional or unintentional evolved processes led towards reinforcing certain systems of ideas or systems of rule. I was, uh, one of the ways I like to think about that kind of dynamism of the different kinds of power is by contrasting uh, George Orwell's 1984 with Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, where with Orwell in 1984, there are kind of very explicit mechanisms of power where you can, you can usually physically see them. Whereas Huxley, Huxley is kind of pointing to this world where the power is implicit where, and kind of, as you just said, the environment is designed in a particular way so that the inhabitants feel they are acting autonomously without being kind of imposed upon. However, there is this kind of ideological current that runs through the environment so that they wind up kind of embracing those very mechanisms of power without realizing it. 
Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a really good example, and um, and you can see kind of, you know, effectively we have both. We, you have both forms. You have, you know, in extremists, highly coercive, uh, violent forms of uh, power and um, observation and all the rest, akin to 1984. But for the most part, you see systems of power that are based on. Um, you know, sculpting our everyday environment and the incentive structures that we face to help us guide us along the right kind of direction. At times, it can involve kind of uh, you know rational forms, forms that speak to kind of argument and our and our conscious, uh, actively thinking mind to kind of try and persuade us. But it often uh, and often more powerfully proceeds through various uh, non-rational, subconscious forms of. Um, persuasion and manipulation um and it's it's that that kind of needs to be understood i think right right yeah as as maybe one of the kind of examples of of how that operates the the first line in your book uh i I just i just thought it was wonderful i had to put the book down and kind of jump around for a bit but you start the introduction of the book starts and i'm going to quote it here it says where did the future go uh, in this paralysis of the political imaginary, the future has been canceled. And this points very much, you, know, you, were, you were mentioning the future and kind of the aspirational mm. future. Um, and, and I'm fascinated by this, by the mechanisms and the forces through which we have learned to forget the future, specifically over the past 50 years. Um, mm. Because if you look prior, and I'd, I'd be curious to hear what you think here, but prior to 1970, you had, you know, much of the policy from the early 1940s um, on was based on John Maynard Keynes. Mm. And Keynes was very explicitly grounding his entire economic project in a utopian vision, right? He was, and I don't know if, if how popular this was in public perception of his economics, but he was pretty explicit, even in his general, general theory that uh, he, you know, he thought capitalism was an objectionable system, but it was the best one around in order to create the conditions for a post-scarcity society. And then in, in the early 70s, a number of, of changes kind of converged. Uh, Keynesian logic started being started falling apart, and this new kind of economic framework that I think we'll we'll refer to as neoliberalism. Um, and I want to be very specific uh, for people who might not be familiar with the term. At least when I use the word neoliberalism, I'm referring to the specific kind and formulation of capitalism with a particular set of institutions and policies that arose in the early 70s and some might say started falling apart in 2008, but largely still continues. So in that switch, right, where Keynesian logic kind of fell out of flavor and neoliberalism arose, something happened to how we related to the future and how we situated kind of socioeconomic evolution and, and, and where we saw ourselves going. And I, and I wonder what you think, what, what was going on there? What, what contributed to the way in which our ideas about the future changed in that switch between economic frameworks? Yeah, I mean, this is a very big question, but it's a very important question. Because I think, uh, you know, a lot of the time, this process is kind of naturalized. So it's, it's you know, there's an idea that, you know, post that the kind of optimism of, of, of the post-war period calcifies and, and, and turns inwards. But really, I think it needs to be understood as, you know, the 1970s were a moment of, of global crisis at a number of different levels, above all at the level of global hegemony, where for roughly 30 years, and, and in some ways going a bit further back, th- there'd been kind of a, a broad agreement and an agreement between most of the left and most of the right about how economies were to be properly managed, about what kind of groups were to be properly represented, 
what the balance was between labor and capital. You know, uh, uh, accompanying this is a kind of a, is a sense of how the future is going to be built and um, mm. how, you know, the specific ways in which tomorrow is going to be different and or better than today. And, it, and in many ways, these, these are, I think, are kind of reciprocally constituted. They, they, they kind of come together. So when you have right. this kind of, when you have a kind of cultural environment where, you know, certainly in the United Kingdom, you had large amounts of kind of state support, often for quite speculative cultural projects. You have uh, a culture in which, you know, um, things like uh, futurology, um, sci- you know, science fictional thinking, which, which was, has always been very influential on, on the ways in which we think about and actively produce futures, these are kind of backed by an idea that we are going to make the world a better place, uh, you know, a basic progressive uh, uh, vision. And in the hegemonic kind of crisis where the existing ways of doing things break down, there's a number of economic shocks involving uh, energy and, and the kind of system of currency exchanges. All of this becomes thrown into doubt. But it, I don't think it was inevitable that, that we ended up with neoliberalism as a, as a result of this. In fact, the neoliberals were able to win this particular battle. And partially what they were able to do was to create um, a system. And the system has you know, various levels to it. It's got technological levels to it. It was partly reliant on you know, the emergence of uh, digital computation to help um, in a number of ways the emergence of technologies like containerized shipping to enable the disaggregation of production systems to enable a vast opening up of you know uh, labor markets in, in in the non-western world but it also relied upon things like being able to culturally capture certain elements of the counterculture that, that emerged at the kind of high point of post-war global north society Mm-hmm. So it was able to kind of capture some elements of the critique that the counterculture had of you know existing establishment society, and it was able to capture them and put them in conjunction with economically neoliberal agenda. So it was there's a few different ways that it was able to do this, but I mean one of these, if, especially if you look across the neoliberal period from its earlier point in the late 1970s and, and into the 1980s especially into the 1990s, when you see a kind of more liberal form of neoliberalism emerge to fully, mm. I think, give, give this kind of hybrid its, its day in the sun. And you begin to see a whole range of demands that the counterculture had, especially around things like a far greater array of different um, identities being possible to practice across a whole, in a whole variety of different ways. These become effectively state sanctions, but only under the proviso that, that they're going to exist within a world of you know, possessive individualism, a world where markets and market-like structures are deemed to be the best way of processing any kind of um, social information, um, and a world where strong states are going to be used uh, against those who would want to restrict the rule of the market. So, so, so what happens? So, what? So, what has happened um, in the in, in this kind of nineteen seventies crisis? Is effectively the neoliberals were able to fix enough elements of the crisis. And crucially, we're able to capture the interests of the leader, the, the leaderships of key um, political organisations, such as the Republican Party, the UK Conservative Party. They were able to have off the shelf lists of policies specifically around things like monetarism, um, but also around, around other policies such as defeating the power of labour unions. And they were able to effectively implement all of this to a point where by the time it came to the 1990s, you had 
the left-wing major left-wing parties basically had fundamentally signed up to most of this neoliberal agenda. Um, mm-hmm. And at that point, you had, uh, uh, especially with the, the fall of communism, uh, everywhere apart from um, China, North Korea, and Cuba, you basically had a a new global hegemony being implemented, um, one which had uh, a very particular sense of what the future was going to consist of. And what is this? What is this vision of the future? Well, it's one where uh, markets and possessive individualism can never change. All that can mm-hmm. happen is you get technological upgrades, but those upgrades will not fundamentally change the way anything within society works. Right. And you know, accompanying this in more popular visions are kind of dystopian understandings where what's going to happen alongside this? Well, you'll get some kind of um, cyberpunk future where there's kind of still massive class disparities, but we're going to have, you know, incredibly uh, effective digital infrastructures and AIs and more recently environmental catastrophe. So we're going to have a kind of continuation of what we have now with slightly better technology while the environment and our kind of social environment collapses. So this is the future that neoliberalism um, effectively offers us. Yeah, I think that's such a good point, too, that uh, I've noted that as well, that there's this shift in the kinds of futures we we were imagining where prior to the 70s, and granted, I was not born then, so I'm open to correction here, but it seems to me that the futures we imagined had a very much a kind of mutable, changing socioeconomic element. Mm-hmm. Whereas afterwards, as as you talk about the future that's that's finds more home in neoliberalism was very much predicated around technological innovations with the same socioeconomic structures kind of piggybacking on those on those uh, changes, right? Like we would imagine yeah. colonizing Mars, but we'd have the same form of democratic politics. We'd have the same form of neoliberal economics, right? There was there was no innovation in that sphere. That was kind of the proviso, as you're saying, that was uh, required to to carry on. Is we'll change all these things. But these things are these things are out of the scope of inquiry, even. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that's quite right. And we were we were talking about this a little bit right before we started recording. But there was also there was some interesting uh, thinking going on in the kind of seventies, eighties, nineties as well. A bit against that current, we were talking about McLuhan and Felix Guattari, who were trying to point to this relationship between the social and material environments and. I think economic as well, that we were existing within those mediums and what Guattari would call the mental ecologies, right? So the subjectivity, individual mm-hmm. consciousness. And this is an area that that I'm very interested in coming from a, a kind of contemplative background, very interested in meditation, these kinds of things where you find very similar kind of responses to the society that was built during the neoliberal period, very similar critiques in that realm. But very often the response is individualized. It's privatized. It's you make the same critique, but the response is uh, to regain your, you know, your cognitive sovereignty. You should meditate for an hour a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, and this almost kind of eerily mirrors the neoliberal logic. One of the one of the criticisms of neoliberalism is that it privatizes structural issues. Right. So if you have a problem that is at least largely um, arising out of a a structural aspect of the system, the the way to remedy that is contextualized in terms of the individual's responsibility. So the easiest example is we're destroying the planet. Therefore, you should recycle more. Right. Mm. Um, Put it on the consumer. And so one of the things that I'm that I really liked out of your work was that you are looking at the structural dynamic at structural change 
and how that is operating on subjectivity, especially through your work on power and hegemony. And I think that's so important to stress that structural change is important, not just to change the material environments that we live in, but but to keep in mind the way that changing those material environments has an impact on how we think about the future, how we experience our lives, right? Mm. So, so I wanted to ask maybe more specifically about uh, hegemony, because I think this is something that is an operative force there. How is it that hegemony is operating in these structures to reach from these structural dynamics, from, say, the way that we design markets into mm. the way that we think about the world? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a whole host of different ways in which, it, in which it does it. I mean, the classic example is education. So one of the reasons mm. why there is, there is so many kind of um, culture wars and political conflicts around education, you know, what gets taught, how it's taught, how it's assessed, uh, all of these things is because of the way in which education is a kind of subjectivity forming machine that mm-hmm. helps shape our um, understandings of ourselves, our worldviews, our understandings of where, you know, especially our countries have, have come from historically. So you can see similar kind of battles in, a, in, a, you know, in America and in the UK around teaching uh, colonialism, teaching uh, the ways in which we've interacted with other parts of the world, things like that, partly because these things help shape the way in which you're going to perceive everything that's going on in the world throughout your life. And beyond the kind of factual content, it's also in terms of you know the way in which you're being taught. If you're being taught continuously for numerically assessed tests, then the way that you think about knowledge is going to be designed around these 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 kind of systems of measurement Mm -hmm. that in itself is going to inculcate a kind of perspective where you think about yourself in a competitive way with other people where you think about uh knowledge in a purely instrumentalist term so it's purely about what what it can do for me in terms of some end result getting into a good university getting a good job (laughs) so you can quickly see how in terms of something like education this is a way in which political decisions um, and often these are taken at the highest levels of government. These are a, a significant government priority in terms of, you know, in the States, you've got things like, uh, are they, they called charter schools? These sort of privatized mm, yeah. educational institutions that have been heavily pushed by neoliberals. We've got a similar thing in the UK yeah. where, you know, that they're, they're kind of a form of educational power that's insulated from uh, state oversight in many respects. Yeah, I mean, this is, this, this is part of the way that it works. But you've also got to think about it in terms of, yeah, literally the built environment. The, mm-hmm. you know, the way people, you know, how do they think about housing? How do you think about transport? If you have a system which has cars as its major, you know, presumption, if you have a system of uh, uh, urbanism built around uh, suburbs and roads, so, you know, you've uh, interstates, you've got already, you've, you've kind of built a world in which you don't have to use a car. No one tells you you absolutely must drive. No one forces you to drive. But if you don't drive, you're not going to be able to get to work. You're not going to be able to see your friends. Um, you're going to be massively detached. And that in itself creates a kind of uh, a whole way of seeing the world where freedom uh, and access to opportunities is mediated through owning a car, you know, driving a car. Um, driving becomes equated with um, freedom and opportunity. So just that in itself is going to have a series of kind of psychological effects compared to societies where you have mass public transit that's incredibly effective and I mean, I you know I I live in London. It's a it's a major city. It has has way too much car transport. But in comparison to most other places in the country, you find most people do not actually own a car. 
And this is partly, oh, wow. and this has certain effects in terms of things like people's psychology. You, if you, if you're dependent upon collective forms of provision, it's going to give you a more collectivist mindset because you are, you are. Uh, you know, if, if it yeah. doesn't work, you know, if there are problems with it, if you know, as we have with our uh, London Underground metro infrastructure, if it's if it's you know way too overcrowded, then you're going to really feel that palpably. It's going to be something you're going to understand, and it's going to help you know affect the way that you think about yourself, the world, your relationship to others, as well as things like politics and economics. That's a real. That's really interesting. I'd never thought of that before. The kind of dichotomy between a car or relying on public transport puts you in a situation where, if you're taking public transport, you are literally participating in that kind of notion of public goods and collective provision. Whereas cars kind of enable you to check out of that, and the more you are enabled to become. Uh, I guess, less dependent upon those collectively provided things, the easier it becomes to kind of denigrate and view them as inessential. That's, that's yeah. really interesting. I mean, there's some, key, there's some, there's some key sort of cultural things that, um, especially Thatcherism, sort of the politics of Margaret Thatcher, leader of the Conservative Party mm-hmm. in, the, in the 1980s and early 90s, like they were very keen. There's a whole line about how economics is, is the method, but the point is to change the human soul. Right. So there's, a, there's certainly a sense that, you know, neoliberalism at its most kind of aggressive was explicitly a project to change people's consciousness. It was to change the way they thought about themselves and the world. And it was largely trying to inculcate uh, a kind of possessive individualism. So it's where you are going to th- basically think of yourself as a kind of um, project that can be realized through individually financed purchasing activities. This has a kind of you know, Foucauldian angle, your self-made artwork that you're going to create through buying stuff. But it also <laughs> has this kind of sort of more sinister angle where because the public domain is so kind of denuded, is so weakened, uh, grotty and, um, you know, run down, that the, the space where you're going to be able to have a degree of kind of like autonomy and to create an environment in which you're comfortable is going to be your home. It's going to be your car. It's going to be building things yourself. And so you see this quickly moves into this kind of quite an entrepreneurial mindset as well, but kind of begins to make, you know, people, ordinary people think like businesses, think like businessmen. Um, mm-hmm. This is something that Mark Fisher used to call uh, a business ontology, a whole way of viewing the world through the lens of um, business. Yeah, I, I was a, a few minutes back, I was smiling when you first started talking about education and, and you called it a, a subjectivity making machine. And this is very much akin to the work, a previous conversation I had on the podcast with um, an educational philosopher named Zach Stein. And he says this, one of the ways he framed it was that education is the human making force in society yep. and that education goes far beyond schools, right? We think of schools as where education occurs, but going to the mall is an educational experience. Riding the tube is an ed- educational experience, right? These are all operating on the kinds of humans that we are becoming. And yep. What has increasingly happened is we have come to think of education as a funnel or a preparatory space for the labor market. And as we do that, education takes on this kind of commodified nature where what we are learning and how we are learning is tuning itself right to the kinds of value that the labor market finds value. Mm. And you know, much, much of the critique here is that this is going to uh, strip and kind of narrow the scope of of what education offers. And I think very much what you're saying, as we as we link education to labor markets, 
they become very tightly coupled so that education is not cultivating spaces for us to think beyond the confines of what the labor market is asking for. So it kind of narrows that institution. Maybe taking another step forward to one of the, the, the elements of your book, too, that was really strong and provocative is you list out four specific demands, right? Mm. And um, the demands are range from very physical structural changes to a little more um, nebulous. Um, and the demands, just to have them out there, you have uh, for universal basic income, full automation, shorter work weeks, and a decentering of the work ethic. And I wanted to ask you about these four and you know whatever is is most salient to you but why were these the four that stuck out to you as if we're going to have this project of what might be called building a counter hegemony right if if we take our critique of the past 50 years and have looked at how power is operating and how neoliber- neoliberal hegemony is kind of molding our built environment in our institutions why what are these for why are they so relevant and strong in your mind to kind of bring us to a better situation Yes. So they, these demands are partly provocative in nature. So mm-hmm. I mean, thinking especially here of demanding full automation. Right. So practi- practically speaking, we're quite a ways off from, from actually being able to implement that. But in, in terms of that demand, it's, it's really about kind of trying to change the way in which we think about the relationship between um, technology, work and politics. So there's a hilarious cartoon that I always like to show my students when I when I teach them about um, automation and technological unemployment and this is this is one where there's there's a worker in a factory and they're, they're kind of slumped on the ground uh, and it, the caption says something like oh no robots have taken my job and then there's a second one which has the sort of heading um, with a universal basic income oh yes robots have stolen my job I don't have to do it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> the, entire, the entire perspective about our relationship to technology which is one that's been inculcated and, and um, shaped by neoliberalism is one where if you hear at your workplace that they're going to be modernizing or going to be implementing new technology, it normally means job losses. It might mm-hmm. mean the work you're doing becomes less interesting. It might mean, um, you know, a whole variety of things that, that, that workers are going to obviously uh, re- reject. But once we kind of begin to think about automation um, as a kind of social goal, as a kind of a goal that as a society we should aim towards because it means we can do more for less, we can be more efficient, especially under conditions of environmental crisis that becomes increasingly important. And from a human perspective, we're able to find meaning outside of work. And the idea that you would have a government aim towards, you're not going to achieve it, but you could aim towards a policy of full automation is one that immediately begins to um, invert some of the relationships that we've kind of built up in our minds, some of these habits of thought, um, ways of thinking about ourselves and the world that have been generated by neoliberalism. So that's maybe the, the most provocative one. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the others, I think, are relatively uh, practical um, and, and sort of directly achievable. So maybe, maybe the next most impractical one is uh, universal basic income. So the reason why we were kind of really interested in universal basic income is because if you're going to have a politics which identifies as a social objective, the automation of, of, of work, it's going to be deliberately chosen, um, funded, financed and implemented by you know, movements, organizations, and ultimately government states are going to aim towards this, uh, then you quickly need some way of enabling people to live under those conditions. 
Now, it's interesting, since the sort of publication of the book, there was quite a lot of interest in universal basic income on the kind of radical left. But now, yeah. um, especially in a kind of um, UK and US, this sort of Anglophone socialist context, it's largely been rejected in favor of people talking about uh, universal basic services. Right. So universal basic services, I'm not sure if you've heard of this idea, but it's, it's basically the, the idea that it's kind of um, social democracy 2.0. It's the idea that you're going to have a whole range of different services. So obviously medical, but, but also things um, like internet, uh, public transport, all of these things will be provided for free. So mm-hmm. this, this is a good and interesting idea, I think. But it's largely, as, as I've suggested, kind of within the, the sort of purview of what we traditionally understand as social democracies. And what I find really interesting about universal basic income is it has a kind of uh, libertarian dimension to it that that would lack. And that libertarian mm-hmm. dimension is about breaking the relationship between work and our ability or and capacity to reproduce ourselves, to continue to exist, and its ability to give us freedom and choice. Because I think sometimes the, the left is often backed into a corner by neoliberal rhetoric and by uh, right-wing rhetoric to kind of go against choice, to say that choice and, and, and freedom are a bad thing. And right. I, I, I kind of know where they're coming from when they make those claims, but they've got to understand that those are going to be very unappealing to a large number of people. Yeah. And that we need to work from the basis that uh, freeing people is, is, is going to be something that, that the left ought to, ought to be embracing and something like universal basic income would be one methodology to realize that. Um, yeah, th- there's been um, there's been a, a very similar kind of um, uh, movement in the discussion on, on basic income here, where I have seen that UBS or basic services has much more of a kind of uh, force in the UK, but in the US, the way that's that's kind of manifested here is when progressives talk about basic income, we're now at the point where. If you're talking about basic income on its own, right? If basic income is divorced from a broader project of reform, it 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 becomes a very slippery slope. Where I think uh, I like how Douglas Rushkoff put it. He said it just becomes a subsidy for businesses, right? There's this yes. fear that if you don't change the underlying relationship between labor and capital, and you just pump more money on the problem, it's going to flow right back to where all the money flows. Um, and so the the idea is is how do you situate basic income? within a, like you're doing, a broader project of reform so that that money is not just kind of going back to exacerbate things, but it is used to kind of fuel a, a much broader shift in how we, mm-hmm. like you're saying, how we relate to these the operative structures in our lives, how we relate to work, how uh, capital concentrates or does not. So it's it's very much here, The there's not so much of a move for basic services, so much as pushing the idea that basic income alone is not enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is absolutely right. And this is a point that we've, we, we've made repeatedly in the book and, uh, and in lots of the, the sort of speaking engagements we did afterwards around it. Um, there's a kind of tendency among some proponents of universal basic income to take a kind of very overly simplistic view on it that, that's looking just at UBI without thinking about the way it interacts with a whole host of other policies and, and power formations and economic structures and coming to quite a naive point of view where they will enthusiastically embrace anything that's called a UBI, even if it's it's not socially progressive or, mm. or helpful. The, the thing that I, I think we would, we would always say is it has to be considered as part of a broader program, as part of a broader <laughs> politics. And, you right. know, and it can only really be understood in that sense, because otherwise, you know, I think 
there have been so many different supporters of universal basic incomes over the years. These, these have ranged from the, the far right to the far left and, and, and lots yeah. of different positions in between. And that's because there's lots of different ways you can set one up. There's lots of different ways it can interact with other political projects. So because of its libertarian angle, this can be right libertarian, libertarian or left libertarian. But also a lot of the time it can just be very, very uninteresting. It can be very, very boring and just be a, just be a kind of rebranded form of you know, conventional income support. So a lot also comes down to the, the level at which it's set and, and what benefits um, it is interacting with, replacing or adding to. So there's, a, there's really the term UBI is deceptive because it covers so many different things. Um, mm-hmm. Like, for example, Andrew Yang, who's been, you know, maybe the most notable figure in right. espousing it on a political level. And what he's proposing is, it's, it's interesting that he's, he's got this out there, but in terms of the specifics of it, it would be very disappointing, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and really, you know, it really would not have very, very good social effects, I think. This is why I think you always need to think about things not just in terms of policies, but in terms of the broader politics that these policies are kind of part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is why why when we talk about universal basic income we're very much thinking about it as a part of a broader project and this broader project is explicitly about challenging capitalism through the kind of hold that work has on our consciousness and also our kind of daily lives and this this is why we're, we're interested in ubi not really you know, just to end up with an additional payment that everybody gets. It's only really explicable in in terms of what it's doing as part of this broader system of policies and ideas. So I think here, just as important is is reducing the working week. And this is something that I think has been, just to quickly go back to UBI, one of the major problems that it has is how do you fund it? If it really is is universal, if it really is a basic income that you can live off, that's quite a large payment. (laughs) Now that now there are some obvious there are some obvious rejoinders that I think we can quickly reject. Like what you know, why are you giving it to billionaires? And it's like, well, they're going to be taxed, so it's right. and it goes out. You know, that's re- that's a stupid argument. Let's get rid of that argument. Right. That's your kind of Kamala Harris style sort of centrism. It's, right. Uh, you know, I think it's we know where that's wrong. But there are some much more serious arguments around. Well, who does pay for it? And mm. exactly how do we how do we fund that? So there, there, there is some, there is some trickiness there, and I've, I've seen uh, political parties who've espoused it get into trouble on the, the kind of the funding side of it because it's not something that can be passed over easily because it's, it would be a very, very, you'd be looking at a substantial part of your total public expenditure, uh, right? If you were going to set it at the right level, so it, would, it needs to be very seriously considered. Does something stick out to you on that front as kind of interesting ways to think about funding it? Yeah, I mean, there's a few different ways of, of, of thinking about it. So some of them would be things like, who is it that currently benefiting from the new range of automation technologies? It's the giant technology platforms, um, you know, companies like uh, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and so on. They're, they're the ones that are benefiting from it and who are already developing it. Yeah. They're also companies that are notoriously uh, very reluctant to pay their fair share of taxes. So they would be one obvious target. Now, there's, mm-hmm. you can immediately see difficulties. How do you actually tax them? But there are, there are various proposed ideas that um, policy experts are coming up there. Another one would be some kind of low-level financial transactions tax that could mm-hmm. um, tax the financial sector at a certain level. Alternatively, there are other suggestions around things like land value taxes, which again would 
These are all things that would, in addition to raising money, have certain you know, good social effects. Um, right. As well as things like income tax. Now, that becomes problematic, I think, because potentially you would be asking if you're combining it with work reduction, you might end up with a system where you have very half of society working and half of society not working. And that would be, un, I think, unsustainable on a kind of political uh, level. Mm-hmm. So this is why potentially we need to think of other ways of, of funding it than directly through income taxes. Because this brings us to the kind of the third point, which is the idea of reducing the working week. That I think is probably like the easiest bit to implement, actually, because it doesn't require lots of money. It doesn't require special technology, including technological developments that haven't happened yet, like genuinely full automation would. Instead, it's something that that just requires us to work less and to come up with sort of legal regulatory systems to kind of back that up. And the the research on four-day weeks, for example, to, to have kind of, you know, if you're looking at the basic Western working lifestyle is is currently on a on a kind of five day week. If you were to reduce that by one day, the evidence is that it's very very good. It's very very good for um, human health, mental and physical. It's it's very very good in terms of enabling people to participate much more in their kind of caring commitments to to their society and uh, their family. It's it's also good in a number of other uh, respects in terms of things like. You know, how people are able to, you know, no longer having to go into work every day means that you, you're able to massively reduce your kind of the energy consumption that work has within society. So it's very good for the environment. It's also very good for productivity. So in terms of doing things like being able to, you know, increase the amount of uh, output per hour worked, you know, this is, this is the number one thing you can do to improve productivity is to have people work less, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is something that, I, uh, parties are beginning to look at seriously. I think this is more feasible to implement than UBI, and it would have some dramatic kind of co- general consciousness changing effects, um, principally along the lines of once people are working less, people are going to be far more free to begin to actually think about what do I want in life? What right. is meaning outside of work? Just that one extra day, I think, would, would be sufficient to begin that kind of um, process, which on the one hand is this kind of, it is about consciousness, but it's also about kind of simply giving people the space to, to, to have the potential to think otherwise. Yeah, that's that's one of the ways, um, one of the really interesting aspects of a UBI, if framed within, as we talked about, this kind of broader context, is how it relates to uh, complexity. And complexity, I know, is, is an area you've done a lot of work as well. But when, it, when in the language of hegemony, one of the responses is, okay, if there is hegemony, how do we build counter hegemony, right? Mm-hmm. And counter hegemonies, uh, like anything else, can operate at an individual level or a structural level. And thinking about counter hegemony as policy, I think is an interesting frame for UBI because doing so at the policy level, it has a more kind of distributed effect where it changes the game for everybody. Whereas when you talk about, you know, what can individuals do, there's going to be a certain degree of, um, you know, some people are going to be able to partake in that and some people won't. Uh, but UBI, I think, is a really interesting example of a way to use universalized, centralized programs in order to promote decentralization, diversity, differentiation, all these kind of, you know, hallmark virtues of complexity um, in complex systems. Um, and you would find, right, you would find, or you would expect, I guess we don't know, we can't really know this, but it seems that there would be a greater diversity in how people use their capital 
Um, and so in how people, as you're mentioning with the shorter work week, how people organize their lives, right? Life all begins to open up in such a way that you have to confront new questions like what to do with your time when you don't have to earn that living cyclically all day. And being able to kind of institutionalize this this diversity that promotes innovation that promotes experimental attitudes mm. that that that's something that's that's very exciting and promising to me do you do you see anything here in the relationship between UBI as a way to kind of promote uh, complexity yeah I, I, I think absolutely it's, it's, it's great that you've raised this um, so I mean one of the major one of the major things that kind of um, has has expanded across the period of pioneer liberalism is um, just a kind of um, th throughout all the parts of the world, which is infected, which is the vast majority of them at this point, is absolutely a, a, an ever increasing focus on the need to work hard and to provide for your family, and you know this has led to a you know not just at the level of the fact that there's, there's you know, less money going into the public sphere, but it's our entire mindset is so focused on. Um, this very kind of self-centered understanding of, you know, a career, a um, you know, finding all of our value through the things that we do, and this is this is absolutely led, I think, to a to a reduction in experimentation. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, you end up with particular interesting kind of scenes at various points in times in certain places, and it's largely because you know they're the places which have a high amount of kind of social diversity. They're very very cheap to live in. So mm -hmm. nowadays, or maybe kind of a decade ago, or over the last decade, this would be like Berlin would be the current centre of, of right. that. In the, in the periods in the past, it's been places like New York. But at a certain point, it becomes so expensive and difficult to live there that you're not going to be able to live there and take significant risks. Um, so absolutely, I think part of the, the relationship between UBI, Reduced Working Week, and social complexity is kind of... Um, emergent self-differentiation and uh, experimentation is going to be absolutely very <laughs> incredibly strong. I think it really yeah. would, even relatively small steps towards it, uh, would have significant effects revivifying our ability to kind of think otherwise, to experiment and to, you know, create new cultural, political, economic forms in which we're going to, which cannot entirely be predicted in advance. But even if you look back to the kind of 1980s, ironically under Thatcher, you had you still had in the UK, you ended up with very high unemployment because of the economic changes that um, her government brought in. But you still had a, a kind of a, a leftover system of benefits payments to unemployed people that meant that there was you know huge amounts of young people could you know work creatively, being in bands, working on art and design. Just on that level, you can see the way in which just small amounts of additional support, small amounts of additional space to think and, and, and to create could have very, very significant influences. Because part of what kind of accompanies neoliberalism is also this, this closing down of the imagination means that in spite of all the huge technological advances, especially in terms of things like computers, computational power, um, al algorithms and so on, what there's not been a kind of revolution in terms of what we're putting them towards. Um, right. It's this kind of thing which would, would begin to see a kind of feedback loop in terms of genuinely creating a kind of more interesting, differentiated human future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of one of the ways uh, that I've been thinking about this, I, I just read a, 
an essay recently, but I think it's from 2014 uh, by Eric Beinhacker and Nick Hanauer. And they, they introduced some language that I thought was really helpful in this space of kind of imagining um, progress as a form of incentivizing complexity. Um, they, they point to the shift of, uh, or they point to the idea that thinking about wealth as mere economic growth is problematic for all kinds of reasons. And this is pretty trite at this point. Um, it's, it's very fleshed out terrain. So what they, what they offer in response is to rather than optimizing for wealth as growth to optimize for, uh, prosperity and the way they define prosperity is what matters. And they define prosperity as the the range of human problems that we have found a way to solve and how available and accessible those solutions we've found are made to all citizens. And thinking about it that way, right, you, you have these two elements. On one hand, we're working to solve problems and, and we've, we've developed and uh, innovated a whole range of solutions to all kinds of all kinds of problems over the past few hundred years but access to those solutions are very um, inequitably distributed right you have people with a lot of wealth can access those solutions very quickly whereas most people need to devote the majority of their lives to gaining access to the things that we have already figured out and so one of the ways that I'm thinking about progressive reform is how can we minimize the time people need to spend in to access the things we already know so that more time can be opened up to kind of playing and experimenting and, and, and exploring in um, in this kind of space of what we don't yet know, what we have not yet figured out. Like you're saying, this kind of self-differentiating space where we, we don't get lost in just achieving what we've already achieved, I guess, for lost, lack of a better term. Yeah. And I think like part of, part of why neoliberalism has worked as a system that's been able to you know, defeat most of its uh, opponents for a large part of its history. Maybe this is slightly more in doubt now, um, but it's largely been successful precisely because of the way in which it's it's you know kept most people busy in a in a way that prevents any any kind of um, serious challenge to itself. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly, if we're going to think about how to build uh, counter hegemonies at the kind of collective level, it has to be partly about thinking about you know beyond just. Uh, either thinking about it in terms of, well, we need to get lots of people on the streets or we need to take governmental power. You need to think more about, well, what are we going to do when we when we get a tiny piece of power, whether within a, a state or within a city or within kind of smaller institutions? How are we going to create the kind of um, longer lasting forms of intervention that are going to have these um, emergent effects that are going to help you know, encourage far more forces aligned with us to to, to, to kind of come to fruition. And I think, yeah, yeah absolutely, this is, this is exactly the right kind of um, way in which to be thinking about it. But it, you can immediately see the, the sort of challenge involved in that. Um, <laughs> if you, you know, if you had absolute power, then you would be able to think about all of these different policies you could implement. But how do you get to that point from a kind of much more partial position? And that, mm. that seems seems to me to be the kind of, major challenge yeah yeah there's it's a really interesting space to watch how complexity science and economics are interacting um this is something that i think was very much born out of the santa fe institute in the 80s with the work of brian arthur so I, i i'm a little familiar with the kind of mathematic and methodological changes that are occurring and i i want to ask you to kind of uh, expand a little more on the ways that complexity is occurring in the social dimension of economics. But just to to set the frame a bit, 
the way in which I understand complexity to be almost literally remaking economics from the ground up is that when we talk about neoliberal capitalism, this is kind of the policy effect of what's known as neoclassical economics, right? Which is a bundle of, of assumptions about human behavior, um, a set of mathematical equations and models, um, largely derived from 18th and 19th century physics textbooks, um, largely built on equilibrium state theory. And this was, I got this from the work of Eric Beinhacker, but when economics kind of borrowed these equilibrium state models from physics and then built all these assumptions around them, uh, those remain at the heart of neoclassical economics today, but physics kind of moved on to adapt uh, more complexity into their models. They started using complex adaptive systems, dynamic models, agent-based modeling, all these kinds of things. And so what's happening in the complexity economic space is they're updating these models to now reflect what we know about complex systems to see the economy as a complex system as opposed to a simple uh, mechanical one. And that's leading to a number of different outcomes. And so if neoliberalism is uh, built on neoclassical economics, I'm not sure it's clear yet what the political outgrowth of complexity economics is. I think that space is still kind of emerging uh, to use their own language. Um, but I but I wonder what what you might be able to add. I know you've done a lot of work on kind of social complexity and power. So I wonder how this idea of thinking about society and economics as complex systems kind of contributes or what ideas it makes possible to kind of think about the way power is operating. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it's, it's very interesting if we think about this, this, this idea of, of, of complexity and neoliberalism, because from, from another perspective, there's a whole lot of people who would probably say the, the opposite to what you, what you just said. Ooh, nice. Specifically uh, along the lines of um, Hayek and um, uh, the Austrian school, who of course have been, mm -hmm. have been less influential on the, the actual um, kind of institutional knowledge in conventional economics over the last sort of 60 years but who've been very influential in the world of politics. Mm -hmm. And there's, 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 you know, the specific um, gesture of Hayek, which is to come up with an epistemological argument, so an argument from the perspective of uh, what we can know for the reason why markets are superior to other human institutions like governments, um, mm -hmm. in terms of solving how we distribute uh, resources, make purchasing decisions, and, and generally run the economy. And um, his argument is one around which, which arises basically um, as a kind of proto-complexity argument around um, epistemological limits and the nature of kind of the way in which certain uh, social systems enable emergent forms of order uh, to come to be. So for mm -hmm. higher, the most important form of emergent order is the order that merges out of the market. So he's not explicitly committed, I think, to uh, a neoclassical understanding of the way in which markets behave. It is much more grounded in this kind of uh, emergentist paradigm, where what he would say is that basically markets are, are a form of information processing system. And that, that mm. because of the way in which they are able to reach a, a kind of result as the result of a whole number of different interactions, they are not just dependent upon... Um, our explicit knowledge, so the stuff that we know we know, but they can also uh, synthesize a whole host of kind of tacit knowledge, things that we know through our practice, but we couldn't ever actually explicate. 
Um, mm. And in this way, he, he attempts to unite a kind of radical perspective on the role of markets, uh, they need to run everything, with what he would describe as a conservatism. Because what is being processed or, or what, what emerges from these kind of um, emergent mechanisms is uh, what he calls traditions, bundles of norms, that some of which we know about, some of which we, we can't ever actually know about. And, and these, these govern human behavior effectively in a way that uh, states and um, political parties uh, and, uh, or bureaucracies cannot. Because right. they only run on explicit information. They never allow a kind of emergent order to, to arise. So when I was writing my PhD, which was on basically complex, social complexity, you know, a lot of my supervisors would say, you know, this, this sounds very neoliberal. <laughs> uh, I, agree, I agree that there's this interesting kind of thing there because neoliberalism in terms of you know, how economics influenced it had these two angles, uh, neoclassical economics, which you described very well, which is absolutely central to it, and this kind of more heterodox Austrian school, which was never that influential on economics, but became very influential on politics through the kinds of institutions that the neoliberals, the early neoliberals built. So, you know, Hayek building his network of think tanks around the Mont Pelerin society. Right. This was a hugely important part of how they were able to assemble, you know, funding, uh, influence networks to keep a set of ideas alive during the high period of Keynesian um, economics and to influence the kind of the governments that ended up um, beginning to implement neoliberalism. So there's, there's this kind of, there's a weird tension that, I, that, that you know, various people have spent a long time trying to tease out between the kind of these two different ways of thinking about things because a lot of the time these two sort of economic traditions don't agree with each other at all about about you know really most things partly because of the exactly as you said the kind of the scientific models that neoclassical economics is grounded in are you know very distinct operating with completely different principles but then this just brings us to the kind of question of how you know in terms of something like complexity how can how can we use this positively if if one of the things that possible uses it can be put to is to justify neoliberalism. So in a, in a way that kind of all politicians uh, during the high period of neoliberalism understood, I mean, this is an argument that no longer works, which is maybe why we're, we can kind of say that we're seeing either an evolution or the kind of replacement of, of neoliberalism. But there, there was an argument which was uh, markets know best. The state is not able to make decisions. This was this kind of really simple idea, but it was rooted in this very, um, you know, complex, detailed sort of social philosophy uh, that, mm. that Hayek had. But I think you can, if Hayek kind of focuses on, I mean, there's, there's a lot of problems with his work, especially in terms of the way in which he is very focused on certain kinds of emergence and not on other kinds of emergence. And I think that if, you, if you're going to think about a kind of what would a, a socially progressivist response to Hayek be that doesn't just say, Ah no, actually, states are best, and, and and we're just we just want post-war social democracy or communism back. And it has yeah. to be to actually say that like there there is something real here, and you can see in the you know in the complexification of society that occurred um, in the especially by the nineteen sixties in, in the global north. This create this did create a real problem, not this necessarily the same problem that Hayek thought. 
but the idea that you're go you're going to be able to have a, a kind of a, pro a progressive form of politics today that does not in some way account for complexity, I think is problematic and, and I would say outright reactionary. So some of the attempts to you know, return to socialism uh, on both the American and British left have led to some elements of uh, reactionary thinking precisely around a kind of inability to deal with social complexity, particularly as it comes to things like uh, a politics based around labor, effectively. So I think mm. that, you know, the, the left needs to learn about how it can think about uh, social complexity and to think about the way in which we're going to have to use this to help us. So thinking about how it is that sometimes um, you know, certain configurations of things within society, economics or politics, can give rise to dramatic consequences and thinking about how we can plan and design for emergence, I think, in the way that we think about politics. So one of these things that we've already discussed along those lines would be thinking about how relatively simple policy interventions can have um, very significant effect, like dramatically disproportionate effects in terms of the way in which they change human behavior. Um, and mm -hmm. um, but we also think about this probably before coming to power as well. So, <laughs> right. which is difficult because you're not no longer really thinking about policy, you're thinking about, you know, political organization. And that's, that's very difficult because, you know, I mean, uh, a, a lot of the way that the kind of new uh, socialist lefts have come together is to take over the existing parties. And I understand exactly why they've done that. But that comes with some consequences. And some of those consequences are that they're, they're machines that are very non-complex. They're machines that are designed for a very particular set of purposes, which is winning power through elections. And there's maybe there's some there's a lot of work that needs to be done in order to transform that. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. There's, there's two themes I want to pick up on there. The first, it, it's interesting that, that you did a lot of work with Hayek because one of the first books that I read kind of, of my own accord and for economics was Ludwig von Mises's massive book, uh, Human Action. And I read it as an economics student before I didn't know any of the context. I didn't know, I didn't even know what neoliberalism was, but that that book really stuck with me and I, I was incorporating it into my thesis at the time, not knowing that von Mises was kind of diametrically opposed to Keynes in many ways, but I was trying to make a point like, look, these are two guys who support this more heterodox view of economics. But what stuck with me from von Mises was a particular passage where he, he says something that like um, progress and retrogression make no sense unless they're embedded within a teleological system of thought. Right, which is to say that, and here I, I might be butchering when I go this far, but it, it seems to me that capital accumulation is not itself a kind of teleological system that gives the a sufficient context to make sense of progress or retrogression. So when I read that that passage, uh, you know, I was thinking, yes, you know, we we need a purpose, or like you're talking about, we need a future. Um, and I, and I'm not sure how strong that context is held up, but an an interesting tension that I think you're pointing at too is is the role of markets and you know what is the role of markets in a kind of progressive left future, right? I, I think the I think the reactionary response is to say you know to equate markets with neoliberal um, institutions and throw them out the window. I think there's there's a much more nuanced and interesting role for markets, especially like you're mentioning in in the way that they can facilitate some kind of decentralization, some kind of emergent phenomenon. 
I, I do think in the right context, they're incredibly useful institutions. They, they can produce all kinds of interesting and um, positive outcomes. And one of the ways that, that my thinking has been shifted on markets is coming a lot from uh, reading Mariana Mazzucato, who, yeah. who like helped me see that the, the, the old, the old way of framing things is that on one hand you have markets and on the other, you have government. And if, mm-hmm. if government acts at all, that's impeding upon markets, but using the kind of language of complex systems, I'm, I'm beginning to think of, of markets as phenomena that emerge out of that kind of sociopolitical mm-hmm. context underneath. Abs- right. Abs- so absolutely. I mean, even somebody like Hayek will, will of necessity say that you need, you know, a kind of minimal state that's going to set laws, right? Because, Right. To have markets requires that you have exchange, and exchange is usually facilitated through you know private ownership of things. So you ne- of necessity, even the people who say that states are like you know the worst possible way of um, processing information and making decisions about how the world should be run, even they say you absolutely require them. Obviously, I think we can we can go a lot further, and I'm really happy to hear you mention uh, Mattacato's work because her work is incredibly interesting on how. When we actually look at how is it that innovation happens, where right. is the fundamental you know, technological innovations in, in areas like computers, smartphones, pharmaceuticals, and so on, where do they come from? And a lot of the time, the kind of the very fundamental elements of them are emerging from state-backed research because right. the kind of risk profiles associated with very speculative research are such that corporations traditionally conceived, they're just not going to want to, to back them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, she has a whole, you know, this isn't to say everything is done by the state, but it's to say that the state is going to be funding this kind of fundamental research later on. You know, um, you're going to get people who are going to be able to turn this into you know, desirable technologies. But this incredible focus on the private sector as being the space where innovation happens and the public sector is the space where boring bureaucracy and you know, nothing good occurs I think has led over time to a world in which like, yeah, like I, I've, I've got a laptop and it's, it's super light and it's, it's got a nice screen, but it's not in a really fundamental way, conceptually, or in terms of its you know, basic technology. It's different to a laptop from the, from the late 1990s. Um, uh, and that shows you what the private sector can do. It can do certain things very well, technical upgrades, um, turning things into desirable, marketable products. But it's the, the kind of fundamental innovations they're gen, generally not willing to willing to back. So you can mm-hmm. see this in, in terms of things like things like AI research today, where yes, some of it is being done um, by uh, private companies, but a large part of it is being being backed by you know, military research uh, complexes. Partly just because they have access to money that can be spent speculatively over you know very long term um, periods of time. They're not focused on you know, short-term profitability. Yeah. I mean, this is even something that, that uh, Keynes foresaw and he talked about. He he said that he could foresee a need to socialize a portion of investment and particularly because the incentives that markets have to invest in certain things are, are just not broad enough to leave the entirety of investment direction um, in that private sector and that the role of the public sector is precisely mm-hmm. to direct investment um, in line with those incentives that society has that markets don't quite reach, right? right. Um, this is, I mean, and I think the way that I understand Mazzucato is talking about this, she uses the term uh, moonshots, right? Moonshot investments. Mm-hmm. And these generally at the moment are 
circling around things related to the climate and the environment um, and things that that markets deal with adjacently, but not directly head on. Um, and especially with the with the example of the climate, where it's something where we don't we might not have time to operate uh, adjacently, but we want to have a direct kind of confrontation with the problem. Um, that that there is a role for kind of some form of socialized or socially directed investment uh, mm. moving forward as a way to deal with with what incentives the market neglects. I mean, um, perhaps an, perhaps another thing we need to deal with though at, at this point though is the is the corporation itself. So I mean, the mm. corporation as a as a kind of form of social organization, economic organization, has evolved along along certain lines towards a kind of position today where um, its interpretation of, of, of what it is kind of legally obligated to be doing mm-hmm. is almost entirely opposed to the kind of social good, um, particularly <laughs> in terms of things, you know, like the very narrow interpretation of sh- what shareholder value actually means to a point mm-hmm. where, you know, you have large numbers of companies that are basically motivated to do everything, including breaking the law, just to get the next quarter's figures up. And that's their literal, almost legal duty to, to do that. Right. And that this, you know, at, at a certain level, we need to think, you know, if we're not going to end up in a, a kind of post-capitalist society instantly, what do we do with these very large, very powerful um, social and economic forms of organization, the corporation? How can we begin to turn them more towards uh, socially useful purposes without just completely getting rid of them? Because that might be very difficult to do overnight. Right. You know, if you're if, if you're not envisaging a sort of Stalinist revolution, um, <laughs> so that you know, there's, been, there's various interesting proposals in terms of how you how you might be able to change some of the incentives. So you, I mean, maybe some of these might be involved changing the kind of uh, legal frameworks in which they're operating to kind of maybe redefine what what kind of shareholder value ought to mean. There's other proposals mm-hmm. around what can be done in terms of forcing corporations to either allow workers on boards this is more of a kind of german or liberal kind of solution right co-determination yeah yeah um and that that could have some some benefits but i think that could be limited there's other ideas around um basically opening up ownership to workers and transferring a certain amount of the total capital of the company to uh its workers over time this was something that was discussed as a policy by Jeremy Corbyn's labor over the last year. I, I know there's a few think tanks that, are, that have done quite a lot of work on this kind of um, agenda to kind of move the economy more into cooperative hands, whether this is in terms of moving parts of corporations into those hands, which would have some influence on their decision making, um, mm-hmm. or in terms of incentivizing new kind of heterodox forms of ownership more generally. So this might be another way to potentially change the kind of time horizon that these very powerful kind of social and economic actors are operating under. So this it does lead us to kind of think, well, what are the kind of radically reformist measures that could be available to start changing the way that they behave? Yeah. And, and maybe in that vein of kind of what do we do now? Um, I wanted to bring up one particular kind of policy framework that I found really interesting and I'd love to get your your read on it. Kind of Drawing on on the the work from Thomas Piketty, uh, Gabriel Zuckman, Emmanuel Says, who are kind of putting out this very broad spectrum notion of progressive taxation and doing so 
funneling the revenues into things like universal healthcare, forms of public goods. Um, I think Thomas Piketty in his upcoming book, Capital and Ideology, even has some idea of a social dividend in there, which is you know adjacent to a basic income. But I wonder if you're familiar with their work at all or what you think about this idea of the policy bundle specifically, right, is going to increase taxes mm-hmm. on capital across the board. So you have higher capital gains taxes, you have higher corporate taxes, you have um, a wealth tax. And what what kind of holds it all together, well, outside of also cracking down on tax evasions, is in order to do that, it's no longer enough to operate nationally, that there has to be a kind of international cooperative kind of effort to regulate capital flows. Otherwise, you just get capital flight out of whatever you know country is going to implement the taxation. So I, I, I wonder what you think about that approach of, of broad spectrum progressive taxation funneled into public goods as kind of a next step forward. Okay, so I'd, I'd say that basically it's fine as far as it goes. I completely agree mm. with it as far as it goes. I think there's some potentially some problems, specifically in terms of the kind of political dimension. You know, particularly looking at Piketty's work and its kind of reception by politicians and its particular set of focuses. Yeah. And it's kind of you can almost think of it as, as it's, it's kind of as good as you can get out of a kind of social democrat, quite a traditional social democratic mm. perspective in terms of, you know, its its analysis, in terms of its um, the kind of sweep of policies that it's it's trying to configure. Um, I think possibly the best part of it is its globalist angle, which mm-hmm. is to say that um, increasingly our, our, our problems are global. The kinds of, um, you know, the world's leading corporations are both massively global and incredibly difficult to tax effectively. Mm-hmm. And the only way we're going to resolve that in the in the near term is to is to come up with some kind of um, you know new global accords that that, that are, are able to more effectively um, tax these organisations either through um, redefining where the, the kind of accountancy rules on where profits are made. So that's so a large part of what makes the very large tax evading companies so effective is that they are able to exploit these kind of accountancy loopholes in order to say that, well, you know, although we did so many billion dollars worth of business in your country in terms of, you know, sales uh, and things like that, uh, actually, our business is actually operating in another country because that's where all of our intellectual property is, is housed, according to these sort of legal requirements. So there's a few different things that could certainly be done there. And I would, I would absolutely um, support that. But I have to yeah. say, I think, like, uh, on the whole, Piketty has been you know, very influential, very widely read, but but in terms of kind of practical effects, I think he's he's come up against some uh, some real limitations, mm-hmm. and these limitations I think are political in nature, which is that the political conditions for a kind of you know return to social democracy are, are not there. Right, they, they they no longer exist. Yeah, like th- you know, even just thinking about like you know in France you've pretty much seen a fragmentation of the left. You've had the traditional socialist party pretty much collapse. You've had um, some radical alternatives not manage to manifest themselves fully. You've had a kind of radical neoliberalism, Macron, um, Mm -hmm. come to take power in the teeth of, you know, basically rebranded forms of of, of, of fascism. So even in kind of France, I'm struggling to think who the, I mean, the bearer of this is a party that doesn't really really have it supporting because you're either mm-hmm. looking at more radical forces that would want to take more severe measures or you're looking at conti- continuity neoliberalism or a kind of protectionist 
uh, national populist pseudo-fascism. I, I, I've been in meetings before with the lead, you know, former leader of uh, the Labour Party who was obsessed with Piketty. But, mm. you know, it, I was talking to him six months after he'd lost an election. So it, it, <laughs> it, it sort of indicates to me the, the part of the problem, which is the unwillingness to deal, I think, with the kind of the, the power question. So you end up with a lot of really persuasive data, incredibly good data work. Piketty and his colleagues, amazingly good data work. But when it comes to the kind of persuasive dimension, it's, it all just rests on sort of petty bourgeois m- moralizing or morality around, you know, inequality mm. is bad. And there are lots of people who you know, absolutely agree with that and who would happily support parties that have these kinds of uh, policies. But there's also plenty of people who just don't care and right. the, the, or, or who, are, who, who find it difficult to care or who find it difficult to vote for those parties for various other reasons. Um, and that's the kind of part of it that I think would need a lot, a, a lot more work. It's really like who is going to be implementing this event. Right. And there's, and this is a point you made in your book too, that I thought was so important is that so much of that kind of, that social democratic platform that is uh, reminiscent of the 20th century was, and, and their, their vision and the ideals and the policies are built around the employment structure of the factory and, and the kind of environment that existed in the 20th century that has so radically changed from then to now and that, that that's part of what I found so compelling about about the work that you and Nick did was it, it feels like we're tr- we want to learn everything we can learn from the work that and, and everything that occurred in the 20th century, but that the vision for the future today is going to be fundamentally different than the one that emerged last century. And, and maybe stepping in that direction, another kind of platform of work I'd love to see if you've come across is began with the work or the book Radical Markets by Glenn Weil and Eric Posner since kind of blossomed into this kind of radical exchange movement. But the the basic idea, is, as I understand that there's a couple kind of policy platforms to it, but they're essentially taking Henry George's land value tax and putting their own spin on it, twisting it up a little bit um, in actually really radical ways. But the basic idea which at first I, I was, I didn't understand. It seemed retrogressive to me until I kind of, I guess, finished the book. Um, but but they're they're still aiming for the same project of redistributing excessive wealth, funding uh, public goods, establishing a social dividend, uh, establishing more flexible forms of property ownership. But they're doing so rather than by decommodifying particular markets. They want mm. to radically extend the use of markets, um, mm. which which is interesting because I think it's pointing. Or at least it's it's helping us stretch our the notion of what markets can do and how they can be used. There's also an interesting tension because on one hand they are advocating for markets in places that we don't have markets. They're actually advocating for markets in politics, which is a whole can of worms. But the fact that that revenues are still envisioned to be funded and funneled into public goods is also signaling the same effort of decommodification in certain areas of life. Um, so that's a really interesting tension. I, I wonder if you've come across their work at all of kind of using markets in this direction as well. Yeah, I, I, I'm not amazingly familiar with it, but I, I have come across it to some extent. I, I think it's 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 very interesting. I, I suspect that it does have certain flaws again in terms of this kind of question mark around around power and around like mm-hmm. why is it that what we have is I think it's, I think it's very important to make the critique. It's often associated with you know anarcho capitalists. We, we probably shouldn't listen to, but it, it does have some teeth, which is that mm-hmm. 
we need to be very clear that we, we do not live in a society where everything is run through markets. Um, right. And that uh, what we have is some uh, set of systems where we have markets, we have states, and we have states intervening in a variety of ways to support and inculcate markets. And this system has certain tendencies within it. So I think the, the problem is, is that effectively such a system over time will tend to generate forms of politics that would tend to undo the kind of vision that you mentioned as the kind of radical markets. It, it's, it's very difficult to think about how you would have you know, market systems that would be perennially resistant to the accumulation of power through markets and mm-hmm. then the conversion of that power into forms of political power, which is what we've seen uh, perennially, especially under, under capitalism. So this, 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 this becomes difficult because you can always kind of see, see the moment of um, you know, reform where you create the kind of you know, very strong antitrust laws, um, strong protections for labor unions, um, and other things that they, um, I think, suggest as, as kind of ways in which radical markets could be kind of balanced and put towards um, socially useful ends. The problem mm-hmm. is, is that um, it's, it's very, very hard to, to stop uh, markets and the money and, and, and power that they generate from creating forces that undo that. Because you know, we've seen this in America. We've seen um, over time all of the laws that were developed to rein in excessive corporate power taken apart. And you know, that is something that's, again, with, is, is very necessary to deal with. And I think the solution to that can't just come through law because law can always be changed through political power. Mm-hmm. So I think it has, it has to come through, at least partly through uh, political ideology and through changing the way that people think and to creating very long-lasting changes in the kind of infrastructure of our world to support forms of power that are resistant to that. Now, exactly what that consists of is, is, is very difficult, and there's <laughs> arguments as to exactly uh, which way you want to do that. Um, right. I mean, another interesting thing is to think about the, the role that markets actually play in terms of this being this kind of, you know, a, a form of social coordination that, that you know, doesn't require or, or requires minimal mediation. Right, uh, normally just like the, the mediation of kind of price signals. What other, you know, how if you were to substitute some form of social organization for that, you know, we don't have to be Hayekians to think that if you just have, you know, Soviet Goss plan, that, that there are some fundamental problems with that, uh, mm-hmm. that, that that you would not want to replicate. So thinking about the kind the kinds of um, distribution and social organization systems that could operate either alongside markets or in their place is, I think, an open question. Certainly one in which we need to think about the role of technology as well. So, um, you know, increasingly in terms of things, especially in terms of things like democracy, so the other major form of social organization, increasingly we're finding that it's, it's no longer really, as it stands, a kind of apt set of institutions to deal with the kind of technological environment that mm-hmm. we're in. And part of the the crisis that we're seeing playing out, um, which I think is partly a crisis of neoliberalism, but which is also simultaneously a, a kind of a crisis of democracy, at least as it's been practiced from the kind of 20th century onwards. Part of that is playing out because of our inability to kind of come up with these forms of social mediation that could upgrade that system. Not that I'm claiming to have all the answers there, but um, <laughs> certainly any kind of project to transform our kind of mass political consciousness would also need to think about you know, in in between the kind of 
the domain of the market and the domain of democracy? What are the ways in which we can um, organize things in you know, increasingly uh, complex, autonomous uh, ways? Yeah, and, and it's it's interesting. I think you're absolutely right to point to when we talk about changing how people think, obviously, right, this is a very profound shift. It's it's not like, oh, we'll just change how we think. That That's very connected with the kind of social structures and institutions at play. And this is something that I actually think I got this from a footnote of your book, but this is something that, that Marx thought very highly. He thought that history is nothing but a continuous transformation of human nature, right? And he saw that the changing of material and social and economic environments was inextricably linked to the cha- to the literal changing of human nature, right? So he thought that human nature was this kind of plastic, mutable, adaptive thing. And you can contrast that with, uh, say, Adam Smith, who had a, a more firm view of human nature. And he believed that, for example, if humans found themselves in conditions of abundance, that human nature was, was such that we would wind up being lazy and kind of slink back into that garden and and lose the industriousness that was required to maintain society. Um, and I, I think that's that's a really interesting kind of tension point is how our theories of human nature influence our, our ability and not only our ability, but our opinions on these kinds of really radical changes that we're talking about i think that so much of the so much of the difficulty we have and much of what you call the that paralysis of the political imagination is that we're trying to project the kinds of humans that we are now today into those future societies and we have difficulty right because we wonder i mean how could a human like me live in a post-scarcity post-work world i would go crazy i would watch netflix all day right all of these fears and concerns and this is very much kind of drawing on that adam smith notion of of human nature where it is fixed where it's it's not necessarily a relationship between us and our socio-material environment but but that nature is fixed, whereas Marx is very much um, of the school that it's going to evolve alongside the institutions. And mm-hmm. I, I've seen um, the the work of Rucker Bregman was also pretty influential in introducing me to Basic Income, his book in 2014, uh, Utopia for Realists. And I'm excited because I, I just learned that the next book he's working on is a book on human nature because he feels that this is the divide, the divergence points in the argument where 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 we kind of people go different ways on basic income is do we believe that human nature is such that in conditions of whether we want to use the word abundance or post scarcity we are going to behave in 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 ways that are kind of um, uh, suboptimal right or are we going to adapt to those conditions because human nature is creative and curious and experimental and and about growth and complexifying right so i i'm really interested i wonder if you have any any feelings on on that idea of kind of how our theories of human nature factor into our ability to kind of imagine different environments this is i mean this is a key dividing line between um uh, political reactionary uh forces and you know those from uh, you know, c- communism to socialism to to all forms of kind of uh, more recent forms of social progressivism are, are it's often founded around around exactly this kind of um, account of whether humans are you know entirely naturalized and um, mm-hmm. reducible to a kind of uh, a set pattern of behaviours from which deviation is uh, difficult or impossible um, and often on that basis like undesirable. This would be the kind of like the, one of the core kind of a 
kind of philosophical underpinnings of conservatism, right? Which is mm-hmm. the idea that humans are not going to be able to fundamentally change. Um, and therefore, you know, when we talk about human nature, we're not talking about a rough set of propensities. We're talking about a set of kind of almost hard limits. That this is, these, are, these are what people are like. And um, mm-hmm. any attempt to change them will create more harm than good. So we need to live within these kind of constraints. And various you know, social forms emerge in order to um, deal with those. On the other hand, we have the kind of progressivist argument, which um, you know, certainly, is, as, as you've correctly surmised, that in terms of, you know, from, from a Marxian perspective, that human nature is a kind of uh, immutable thing that can be kind of re-engineered or that's going to develop in relationship to its, in, to its environment. So I think that we, you know, we need to acknowledge that there are certain things about humans as kind of biological entities that uh, mm-hmm. would probably re- would probably remain in, in most futures. But a large part of our kind of way of seeing ourselves does seem to be relatively uh, historically changeable. Um, I mean, if you think about the distinction between, you know, maybe the, the most significant shift that humans have seen, which is the, sh- the shift from, you know, hunter-gatherer societies towards sedentary Right. Societies. When you begin to have agriculture, when you begin to have, you know, I mean, that's as big a shift as the shift from where we are now to some kind of post-scarcity future. Right. Um, so it's, you know, I mean, this this is the this is the early form of post-scarcity, right? It's where you've moved scarcity from being something that's directly related to the environment towards a kind of it's now mediated through social organisation in this kind of much more um, complex way and a whole kind of host of kind of changes come from that. But, you know, we can look back on uh, you know, early city-based civilizations and find a lot of commonalities with them, partly because they're working on a, on a, on a similar basis. But I don't think this means that uh, human nature is, is unchangeable. I think it's certainly relative to the kind of conditions that we exist within. But I think it's also something that we can, we can kind of take a certain conscious relationship towards. So it's not just something that necessarily is going to kind of happen to us i mean you can see a kind of a kind of shift that happens in um this kind of explosion of different social desires and forms of kind of creativity in the kind of high period of um keynesianism in the late 1960s when you get this kind of explosion of social desires that that can't that is the result of this system but can't be contained within it and you have a whole series of kind of social innovations that some of which have, have, have fallen fallen away and some of which have become completely naturalized mm-hmm. um, especially around around things like you know sexual morality uh, uh, mm-hmm. throughout the developed world under, uh, underwent a huge sea change that now seems absolutely natural I, you know I th- I, there is this kind of tendency towards a, a kind of naturalization of our of our present conditions to kind of think that things have always been like this and always kind of will but in, you know, I think in reality, these things are you know, far more changeable uh, than, we, than we might anticipate. And not just changeable along, along the lines of kind of fundamental technological or civilizational changes, um, but also along the lines of you know, how, how do we think about ourselves? How are we going to kind of take ourselves as objects that can be um, liberated and transformed in various different ways? So mm-hmm. I think even if we look at our recent history, we can see that you know, we are able to change things that look like our human nature is quite... Um, quite substantially right yeah it's um the 
the guy I mentioned at the beginning of, of the conversation, Zach Stein, he, he, I really like his framing where he talks about this transition from where we are now uh, to a post-scarcity society that is beyond kind of wage labor centric, right? Where wage labor is not the organizing force of, of social dynamics. He frames it as an educational project that fundamentally this requires broadening the scope of education from the kind of commodified labor uh, funnel into the labor market and into recognizing how profoundly the um, education functions as a human making force. And mm. so it has much of a connotation of, of broadening our, our conceptions, broadening our ideas. And this is, again, this is really what I got out of your book. And, and I like that I like that you framed when I mentioned your four demands that you framed them as kind of provocations, because mm. that's very much what I think we need is not necessarily someone saying, here is the policy framework that will take us into the future. Although I think that the kind of work on the details is absolutely essential to begin kind of uh, making this conversation gain momentum. But what we need so much, I think, are, are just a kind of diversity of provocations, right? These kind of invitations to begin imagining different worlds to begin imagining what what would the future look like if i kind of shed as many of my conditioning ideas as possible and really let myself just explore the possibility space right um and and really that's that's what your that was one of the things your book did for me is is it was it provided the kind of first an intellectual understanding of how we came to the place that we are and then it, it just provoked idea after idea and uh, I know I'm not alone, right? It, it generated a lot of talk and um, a lot of a lot of conversation. And I think that's one of the best measures of you know how how a work is contributing to the discourse is on both sides, critiques and on and and building constructively, right? What kind of conversation is being generated? And so I, I did really I wanted to thank you for that, and maybe ask you as we as we move towards something of an end here. Um, it's been something I think four or five years now since since your book came out. Yeah. What when you look out at the landscape today, what do you see emerging that gives you some kind of hope or optimism or or even intrigue, right? What what is provoking you now? Cuz cuz you've you've surveyed a lot of the landscape already, right? You you really covered a lot of the policy, you covered a lot of the history. So I wonder what you see emerging that's kind of intriguing you and and where you're left wondering like, hmm, I wonder what might happen there. Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's 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 hard to, to to talk about this without without becoming slightly depressed, given the kind of <laughs> conjuncture that we're faced with. But I think it's important to try right. not to become completely disenchanted. Um, yeah. So I basically hold. I mean, the thing the thing that gives me most cause for hope is the fact that you know the way I'm sort of looking at things now is that we're in the middle of a of another 1970s style global crisis in terms of how power works, how the economy works, how you know our values work. So it's a global hegemonic crisis that, unfortunately, again, the right has 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 very quickly been able to mobilize itself, transition itself towards a different kind of politics. One that is not necessarily a kind of cancellation of neoliberalism in terms of a lot of its kind of specific policy agendas, but which certainly at the level of its kind of um, justificatory framework and the kind of ideas that it's drawing upon um, is a radical shift. I mean, that's... Mm. You know, completely observable if you look at the way that you know Trump has disappointed lots of neoliberals with his right. you know uh, trade wars and uh, you know his approach to kind of immigration and lots of other lots of other things. This has been a, a 
a shift. It's a shift towards a kind of revalorization of uh, borders. Of it's a, it's a moment of kind of relative de-globalization, perhaps at the kind of certainly the economic level. But I think the response is heavily unstable, and the tensions between it and the kind of remnants of neoliberalism uh, are not going away. And whilst we've seen you know, various left-wing attempts to kind of build a politics that's going to be uh, a genuine answer to this crisis, um, we've seen a lot of them fail. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've, in the UK, we went through a huge failure in the, in, in the collapse of the attempt to kind of convert main left-wing party, the Labour Party, into a kind of neo-socialist institution, um, or at least to, to, to win the election under very kind of particular conditions. Mm-hmm. However, I think they, those attempts are not going to stop. <laughs> We're going to see continuous attempts to create a kind of, to work out what this neo-socialism or sort of new socialism is, is going to be and what it's going to look like. And lots of these attempts are going to fail. Lots of these attempts are going to be you know, unable to either beat the opponents or to properly evolve from you know, some uh, form of kind of re- retrogressive mid-20th century leftism. Uh, but eventually one of these will succeed uh, because there is just the, the amount of demand, especially amongst kind of younger people throughout the developed mm-hmm. world and elsewhere, is so large and so much energy and ingenuity is going into this in contrast to sort of 15 years ago when there was the sense that really nothing could be done at the level of state, national level or international politics. Um, the best you could hope for was some kind of street-based protest movement. Really, that's the thing that uh, that gives me hope. And, and really what's necessary is exactly these kind of imaginative leaps to think about how can we, we recreate something without just repeating what, what, what happened in the past? How can we create something that's adequate to our current kind of political, environmental, cultural moment, which is one where, you know, there, is, there are immense challenges and simultaneously immense opportunities. Because fundamentally, the, the, the kind of um, neo-nationalist populists of pseudo-fascist right does not have the answers. And, you know, they are quite able to, to pose themselves as, as being persuasive in the short run. But I think in the long run, they may come into significant trouble, especially if they were faced with a genuinely populist left neo-socialist challenger. So this is, this is what I'm, this is what I'm hoping for. <laughs> yeah. That, that's our, that's the team. We're in the Super Bowl, and that's the team yeah. we're rooting for, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and, and I'm, I'm going to ask this selfishly, but I, I do suspect some of some listeners might ask, have the same question. If people are interested in in doing more reading in terms of power in in a kind of an era of complexity, right, and learning about the interaction between power and, and complexity, do you have any suggestions, any pointers for for reading or resources to kind of get more familiar with that conversation? Yeah, this is a, this is a really good question. I'm just going to look something. I'm looking something up here. I mean, uh, there's. I could, I, I could probably offer a variety of very um, very abstruse academic texts. But basically, I'm working on a book right now, which is going to be, again, for a kind of um, populist audience, but, you know, with a, with a lot of interesting ideas in it. Mm-hmm. It's exactly answering this question. So I'm, awesome. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just finishing this off now. This should be released next year. And this book is called uh, Hegemony Now, Power in the 21st Century. Um, and I, I'm working on this with uh, a friend of mine, Jeremy Gilbert, who is my... PhD supervisor, and we're, this is basically, you know, exactly what we're trying. We're trying to think through is <laughs> how, how is it that kind of power has evolved 
how is it that we can think about the kind of complexities of power today? So rather selfishly, I'm just going to say that because there's a whole load of very complicated Absolutely. that I, I think a lot of people probably want to avoid. But this is, this is what I'm working on right now. Awesome. I, I was kind of hoping you would go there. Um, it's, uh, I, I, and I agree, trying to, it's, it's excellent to have that kind of work, not diluted, but, but try to bring it to a frame where a more popular audience can kind of begin grokking and, and grappling yeah. with it. It's, it's, um, it's so. kind of like synthesizing a lot of stuff um, yeah. that's out there and maybe is not the most readable material or maybe, you know, needs to be put in a slightly different um, Okay. If you made it this far, I hope you jived with some of that a little bit. I certainly did. Uh, I thought his opening was so strong, right? Where he framed his work as ultimately asking the question, how is change possible in an environment where we can feel so powerless to enact kind of broad structural change? And for him, that's a question of how power is distributed throughout society and also how imaginative we are in terms of the futures that we work and often struggle to bring into being. Uh, But politically speaking, our visions of the future are what guide and ground our actions in the present. And reading his book kind of burned this imperative into my mind that we cannot forget the future. On the episode page, uh, which you can find at musingmind.org slash podcast and clicking on the Alex Williams button, You'll see a picture of his face and his book. Uh, You'll find links to Alex's work, to books and things that we mentioned throughout the conversation, um, and buttons to help support the podcast. All right, thanks for listening. And whatever you're up to, whatever bundle of humans wind up actually listening to this, hope you enjoy it.